welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Chris Haufa, Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Philosophy and the Committee on Conceptual and Historical Studies of Science at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk to us about evolutionary psychology. Chris Haufa, welcome. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. So I thought we might begin just by way of background talking about natural selection. What is natural selection? What's the idea behind that? Well, so at any given time in a population, members of the population will differ in a variety of ways. Some of these differences will cause certain members of the population to be more reproductively successful, uh, that is, leave more descendants than other members of the population. Now, if those differences that allow certain members to be more reproductively successful are also inherited by their descendants, the idea is that those descendants will also, or at least some of them, will, be, will have better reproductive success in the way that their parents did, and eventually the members who have these certain properties that cause them to be more reproductively successful will spread throughout the population and become sort of the normal form that that organism takes in that population. So this is the science that we've come to know as evolutionary biology, the science that studies this process of natural selection. And I guess a lot of us are familiar with the examples we were taught in school of giraffes with longer necks having a better chance of getting the higher leaves on the trees. You've written on a specific field within evolutionary biology, or some people might even call it a different field altogether. That's to say the field of evolutionary psychology. So I wonder if you could say something about that field. What specifically is studied by evolutionary psychology? Okay, well, evolutionary psychologists look specifically at traits shaped by natural selection associated with human psychology, the human cognitive architecture. Well, and I I guess they can look at it in non-humans as well, but human evolutionary psychologists just focus on those psychological traits that have been shaped by natural selection. So with respect to a distinction between evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology, I don't see there as being any distinction at all, really. Some evolutionary biologists work on morphology, how a population came to be shaped in a certain way, right? Have a body that's shaped in a certain way. Um, Evolutionary psychologists work on problems associated with how the human population came to have a mind that's shaped or works in a certain way. And so, I, I mean, I guess I don't personally see any distinction. I mean, they're both working on evolutionary history. Some people work on bones. Other people work on psychological traits. Okay, so there's no firm distinction then. You just simply have different things that can be studied from the point of view of evolutionary biology. You have, you have the evolution of certain body parts and certain organs and certain functions that those body parts and organs perform. And on the other hand, you have the evolution of brains and minds and certain psychological capacities that evolve. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, you see those two as continuous. Mm-hmm. So what would be an example of a psychological trait that an evolutionary psychologist would argue evolved by means of natural selection? Uh, okay, so well, one psychological trait that received a lot of attention uh, recently is jealousy, the human capacity for jealousy. Right? At least one evolutionary psychologist named David Buss, he has written a book specifically on jealousy and um, you know, its evolutionary function and 
its manifestations in contemporary human culture and so that's an easily you know sort of identifiable i mean everybody sort of knows what that feeling is like and he's exposed the trait itself to some pretty sustained analysis evolutionary analysis so that's one example another example a lot of times it comes in the form of behaviors right so evolutionary psychologists have looked at the old stereotype that men are more promiscuous than women right and they've attempted to provide an evolutionary explanation for that or homicide okay violent behavior that's another widespread trait that's received the attention of evolutionary psychologists at least since so it really got going in the early 80s and a pair of evolutionary psychologists Daly and Wilson have been sort of churning out general explanations of violence and then explanations of specific sorts of violence like step parent on stepchild violence and that sort of thing. So a lot of times analysis is likely to come in the form of focus on a particular behavior as it is to be focused on a particular qualitative psychological feeling or something like that because of the presumption probably justified that behavior comes from psychology at least to some degree. Now off the top of my head I would imagine that jealousy actually raises difficulties how do jealousy or the tendency to commit murder enhance our ability to reproduce? So let's take jealousy, for example. That Buss has described jealousy as a, the human manifestation of a common behavior throughout, across organisms, right, called mate-guarding behavior, right? So a lot of organisms want to have exclusive access to their mates, particularly those organisms that engage in parental care, so if you are spending a lot of resources and time on offspring, you want to make sure they're yours, right? Because you'd rather enhance your reproductive success than some other male's reproductive success, right? At least jealousy in males, this is described as a mate-guarding behavior, right? So when you're calling your girlfriend's cell phone every 15 minutes to figure out where she is and you you don't let her go out of the house, you uh, give her the third degree every time she comes home, right? This is the same thing that uh, some primates do when they stand in front of the female and chase off anybody who tries to come near her. These are supposed to be the same type of behavior, same adaptation, just manifest in different ways. So one criticism of this kind of explanation is that you could do it for just about anything. So there's been a criticism of evolutionary psychology that it trades in just-so stories. So Mm. we observe that human beings are jealous. We say, great, we can come up with a story for that. Obviously, it's because you would have needed to be jealous to do so-and-so. The criticism is that if human beings hadn't been jealous or they'd shown some other kind of trait, we could have explained that as well, that that these stories are, in a sense, just improvised to explain whatever traits human beings actually have. I guess two questions. One, to what extent do you think that's a justified objection? And secondly, how would an evolutionary psychologist go about responding to that? What sort of arguments or evidence would they bring out to show that they're not just telling just-so stories? These are legitimate explanations. That's a good question. So the first question is the labeling of evolutionary psychologist explanations just-so stories justify Yeah, I think that is justified. Most of the critiques do focus on the fact that 
what evolutionary psychologists typically do when they're explaining behavior is tell a plausible sounding story about the evolutionary value or adaptive value of the behavior. Now, the idea that what's bad about telling just so stories is that you can do it for any phenomenon and its opposite. I think that just so stories do have that feature, but I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. I mean, hypotheses as a class also have that feature, right? I can, we can explain why the sky is blue in a sort of narrative way, and people had you know, narrative explanations, but had the sky been black, we would have been able to explain that too, because we're pretty good at explaining things. You know, I think evolutionary psychologists have been sort of unfairly um, maligned by this just-so story epithet that's been thrown at them, because it's a very common practice in science. Well, scientists commonly tell just-so stories, okay? Now, what's bad about a just-so story is that it can often seduce the storyteller into thinking that uh, they've provided something probative, right? In telling a, a plausible story or a story that's consistent with the data, that they've actually confirmed a hypothesis or something. Evolutionary psychologists, I think, have been seduced, by and large, by that tendency of just-so stories to sound like I've just confirmed some hypothesis, right? So I, I would say that the epithet just-so story is justified, but the perception that there's something wrong with a just-so story in and of itself is erroneous. Now, to be fair to the critics, right, evolutionary psychologists, as I said, are guilty of mistaking just-so stories for hypothesis tests or something. And that's something that other scientists are typically able to avoid. And something I've argued is one of the main divides between evolutionary psychologists and other people working on evolutionary history, is that a lot of times you'll just see somebody tell a plausible-sounding evolutionary tale and then consider their work done, right? Whereas the evolutionary tale uh, in the hands of an evolutionary biologist is just you know, the beginning of how do we construct a research program to test this to test the truth of this tale. For evolutionary psychologists, the test uh, is whether it's consistent with the data, and that doesn't pass muster in most of uh, science. So let's go back to one of the examples that we discussed earlier. We said that jealousy is a very common trait exhibited by human beings, and one of the ways that evolutionary psychologists will explain that is in terms of the kind of behavior that would be necessary on the part of an adult male to hold on to his mate, mm. make sure that she only mates with him. Mm -hmm. If I'm an evolutionary psychologist, if I've invoked this story to explain jealousy, what have I done wrong exactly? Why does my story not do all the explaining I want to do? Sure, okay. So, I mean, if you think of the claim that jealousy is a mate-guarding adaptation, right, you can separate two claims there, right? So this is a hypothesis that you want to test. You can separate two claims. One is that jealousy is an adaptation, right? When you make that, that claim, what you're saying is jealousy in humans has a particular evolutionary history, one in which the behaviors, say, caused by jealousy, feelings of jealousy or thought, jealous thoughts, the behavior caused by jealous mental states 
caused people with jealous mental states to leave more offspring than people who were not jealous, okay? And that those offspring tended to inherit the tendency to have jealous mental states. So that's a very specific claim, and it's very hard to test, right? You need to have a lot of data. The way an evolutionary biologist would do this would be to look at a contemporary population. There's lots of ways to do it. One common way is to separate the population into two groups, a group that has the trait that you want to test the adaptiveness of and another group that doesn't have that trait. And then see who leaves more offspring. Do the organisms that have the trait tend to leave more offspring than those that don't? If you find that they do tend to leave more offspring, then you can ask why, okay? Is it because of the jealousy, right? Or is it because of the trait that I'm interested in, or is it because of something associated with that trait, right? And you can test for that, too, in a similar way. The problem is that that's really hard to do with human populations. So we have ethical issues uh, that make it hard to do. We're very long-lived. That tends to make the measuring reproductive success difficult. Now, of course, there are other ways that you can test the adaptiveness of a trait, right? You can do it comparatively through, you know, by looking at the fossil record or something. Now, the problem there is that, of course, psychological traits tend not to fossilize. They just sort of turn into ooze and turn into dirt or evaporate. I guess I don't really know what happens to brains after we die. So it's hard to look, you know, separate the jealous ancestors from the non-jealous ancestors, okay? This is just a problem with respect to establishing a certain behavior's status as an adaptation, okay? Now, the other claim packed into that hypothesis, jealousy is, you know, a mate-guarding adaptation, is that the evolutionary function of jealousy historically was to guard mates, you know, to protect men from being cuckolded or whatever, you know, to waste their resources on somebody else's offspring. That's also very difficult to test, right? Because what you need to show is, say, that the behaviors caused by jealousy, A, that they're really good at ensuring that the offspring on whom one expends resources are their own offspring, right? And you have to show that doing so Uh, makes one more reproductively successful, right? So you could show that jealous behaviors tend to uh, help men avoid wasting resources on someone else's offspring, right? While it, it still remains true that they tend not to, on the average, to be more reproductively successful, right? That, um, whether you succeed in confining your resource expenditure only to your offspring, you don't do any better than people who are pretty laissez-faire about what their mates do or what other people do to their mates. So, again, you need to be able to show that it actually performs this function, and you need to show that not just the idea that it could possibly have done that or that it could do that in the here and now, right, that we can show that it's good for that, but that back when humans were evolving in sort of the initial non-human to human transition, that jealousy did actually do that, right? It's not just a matter of showing that it, it could be good for that. It's usually going to require you to show that those people way back then actually 
enhance their reproductive success by being jealous. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about testing adaptation hypotheses, right? You need to show that it's an adaptation, and you need to show that it actually was an adaptation for what you think it's for. So earlier on, we said that evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology were continuous in that evolutionary biologists study the development of body parts and evolutionary psychologists study the development of psychological capacities. But here you're raising a contrast. It seems you're saying that, well, the ordinary kinds of traits we study, those hypotheses are a lot easier to go out and test. And the critique of evolutionary psychology seems to be that, well, the hypotheses are perfectly good as hypotheses, but there are all kinds of practical difficulties that come up regarding how to test them. On the basis of what do we prefer one hypothesis over the other? So is that more or less the essence of Mm -hmm. your critique? Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. So one question that I think might come up too might be something like, so how does this apply to philosophy exactly? It seems like a lot of what we talked about are sort of empirical, methodological questions to do with how to practice the science of evolutionary biology. Are there other areas of philosophy that this type of inquiry might be relevant to or have application to? I mean, there's definitely a tendency among philosophers in certain subspecialties to bring in evolution as sort of a skyhook to save. And, you know, this is actually how I I myself got into critiquing evolutionary psychology because I, I started off as a philosopher of mine and really enamored with evolutionary theories of consciousness and this sort of thing. And then one day it just dawned on me that this is just storytelling. There's just no... It's in their empirical claims, and there's no empirical content to my arguments. And whatever empirical content there was was not strong enough to ground claims about evolutionary history. I decided rather than be an evolutionary psychologist, I would like to talk about what's wrong with doing evolutionary psychology. There is sort of a tendency to gesture in the direction of fitness-enhancing properties of some human behavior, some human traits. So you see this in uh, moral philosophy. You see it in philosophy of mind, political philosophy, right? Now, to be fair to people, you know, engaging in this sort of work, they usually don't hang their entire argument on, you know, the adaptive value of uh, what they're proposing. And so it's not really that much of a problem. I mean, it, it hasn't really become a problem in the way that it has for psychology, But uh, it also, I think, is often used as a crutch, right? That, you know, you try to bolster your case by making up some story about the, you know, fitness value of this or that human behavior. I don't think it really adds anything substantive to the argument. So, for example, a moral philosopher, let's say a moral philosopher was championing some sort of altruism over egoism, that moral philosopher might cite a theory from evolutionary psychology to support uh, his or her argument. But it seems like yeah. what you're saying is that, well, effectively, what they're citing is a hypothesis that may or may not end up being confirmed. There's a little bit of a sleight of hand there. You're drawing on a hypothesis as support for what you're saying. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, philosophy does really well, I think, when it pays attention to the sciences and tries to draw on them and systematize them and so forth. I don't think that philosophy does particularly well when it draws on wildly speculative areas of science like evolutionary psychology, right? So moral philosophy is a perfect example. 
And it has some of the bad associations with just-so storytelling that evolutionary psychology has, right? You can look at altruism and talk about why it's adaptive, or it might have been adaptive, or it might have been maladaptive. Right? People have done both. Unfortunately, right, a lot of traits, we know this, right? a lot of traits are uh, selected for reasons that wouldn't normally strike us as adaptive. So, I mean, they're adaptive in the sense that, that by definition, if they were selected, then they're by definition adaptive. But when you think of them in terms of increasing flourishing or something, right, it doesn't really, doesn't really map onto a lot of traits in non-human taxa that we know are adaptations. So take a good example is sexually selected traits, right? Sexually selected traits, there's a, a large class of sexually selected traits that are selected for no other reason than that the females in the population, say, sometimes the males, but typically the females, because of a accidental property of their neural system, tend to prefer that trait in males. Okay, so like a certain spot pattern or a certain color or something, or a certain, you know, way their chirp sounds or something like that, right? These traits don't make the males any more, like, vigorous or robust, right? They're just... Uh, just because of the way that females are wired, they tend to prefer this thing over that. They could have been wired in a completely different way and instead preferred the opposite, right? So, you know, we have no reason to think that a lot of our moral proclivities or widespread human behaviors aren't like that, right? Aren't just the result of proto-human females arbitrarily preferring one thing over another, or proto-human males arbitrarily preferring one, one thing over another. If they arbitrarily prefer it, and you, by chance, happen to have it, you're going to leave more offspring. The danger uh, in evolution, you know, in the, bringing in evolution to explain uh, human behaviors is just as deep in philosophy in that case as it is in evolutionary psychology, right? because of this, the ever-present possibility that it's not because of the robust sort of flourishing that the trait affords its bearer, but that it mates just happen to prefer that. Chris Alpha, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>